Welcome to the People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. My name is David Kim. And I'm Christina DM Fam. Thanks for joining us for episode 10. It's Saturday, June 5th, and you can hang out with us every Saturday morning beginning at 10 a.m. Today, we'll talk about news happening right here in our city, including the latest on Tigre, public banking, and housing shortages. We're also talking to Hamid Khan from the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition and highlighting some upcoming community events. We're here to share what's going on in your neighborhood, talk about issues that impact you, and highlight the goodness within our communities. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on y'all's voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And we're here to empower y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. So to kick things off, our show usually focuses on headlines that remain local to Angelinos. However, the people was born out of the need and desire to focus on social justice issues, locally, nationally, and abroad. As humans, we are connected through our fight for equity, freedom, and common humanity. What happens beyond our city impacts the lives of those immediately around us, whether or not we see it or experience it directly. International pressure continues for Ethiopia to declare a ceasefire and to allow for delivery of aid to the northern region of Tigray. Around 90% of the people in the northern Tigray region need emergency food aid after months of displacement and conflict. 90% totals to around 5.2 million people. Last November, the Ethiopian federal government, alongside Eritrean forces and Amhara militias, moved to oust the Tigray People's Liberation Front from power. Since those initial events, there have been countless reports of sexual violence, indiscriminate killings, starvation, destruction of healthcare facilities, and more. There are many places to learn more about the humanitarian crisis and genocide taking place in Tigray. Here are two resources to start learning from, Omna Tigray and Tigray Youth Network. You'll find Omna Tigray at omnatigray.org. We'll also include a link to these additional resources on our Instagram page. We also encourage you to do your own research from there. The California Assembly voted to pass AB 1177, the Public Banking Option Act, this past Wednesday, June 3rd. Now it will proceed to the California State Senate. The Public Banking Option Act will provide a public option for essential financial services through the Bank Cal program, such as using a debit card, depositing funds, automating bill payments, and setting up direct deposit with zero fees and penalties. Public banking efforts aim to close the racial wealth gap, eliminate the exploitative practices to traditional banking, and reduce Californians' risks of falling into further debt. AB 1177 is co-sponsored by Public Bank LA, the Services Employees International Union in California, Fight for 15, and the California Reinvestment Coalition. Public Bank LA will also host a community teach-in tomorrow, June 6th. We'll share more info about that in this week's Community Spotlight. Los Angeles County has reported a shortage of nearly half a million affordable rental homes. According to the 2021 Los Angeles County Housing Need Report, more than 499,000 low-income renter households lack access to affordable housing. Among other things, this report highlights the following. One, that more than three-quarters of extremely low-income households spend over half their income on rent, with roughly 90% spending more than a third of their income on rent. And two, 
more than 55% of low-income households spend over a third of their income on rent, with 13% spending more than half. The average price of rent in L.A. County costs about $1,998 per month. This report also states that a household needs to bring in at least $6,627 per month to afford the average rent at a third of the income. That number breaks down to about $38 per hour with a full-time schedule. Keep in mind that minimum wage in Los Angeles County sits at $13 and $14 per hour, depending on how many employees a business has. You can find a full link to the report on our Instagram page at thepeople underscore LA. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. In episode 9 last week, we talked about the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition in Community Highlights. When we mention LAPD here, we're referring to the Los Angeles Police Department. As a refresher, the coalition is an alliance that comes together to collaborate and take collective action towards dismantling government-sanctioned intelligence gathering in all its forms. And today, we're grateful to spend time with Hamid Khan, one of the group's most instrumental organizers. Hamid Khan is an organizer and coordinator with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. The mission of this coalition is to build community-based power to dismantle police surveillance, spying, and infiltration programs. They utilize multiple campaigns to advance an innovative organizing model that is Los Angeles-based, but has implications regionally, nationally, and internationally. Hamid also serves on the board of May 1st Technology, a membership organization that engages in building movements by advancing the strategic use and collective control of technology for local struggles, global transformation, and emancipation without borders. Hamid, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you for taking the time. Well, thank you for the invite. I'm really honored, really appreciate it. So to kick things off a little bit, we talked a little bit about what the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition does, but can you expand upon that definition and give us a more in-depth look at the coalition? Mm -hmm. Well, primarily the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition's goal is to inform our communities of the insidious nature of surveillance and spying and infiltration. And, and when I say insidious, the, typically the conventional understanding of surveillance uh, is very much sort of narrowed in this understanding of uh, invasion of privacy, which has always been the, the conventional understanding. But what the coalition is, has done is over the last 10 years since its inception has really kind of challenged uh, these very narrow notions of, of surveillance and expanded them into and, and proven through documentation and impact on our communities that it is really a, a deeply methodological process or, method, or methodology that law enforcement uh, deploys uh, in order to, to how race and poverty and suspect bodies are policed uh, with the intent to cause harm. And by which I mean that when you look at the history of policing in this country, when you look at the history of, of uh, slave patrols, when you, when you look at the history of enslavement, uh, when you look at the history of genocide, when you look at the history of how communities have been contained and controlled, surveillance has always been central uh, to, to that operation. Surveillance has been the key, and, and we, we say as abolitionists that surveillance is really the tip of that policing knife, that until we eradicate and dismantle surveillance in all its forms, um, the abolition of policing really just does, we, we won't get to the abolition and dismantlement of state violence and policing in this country. 
Now, with regards to you had just um, mentioned the surveillance and that um, it's inseparable in a way from the intent to cause harm. And in regards to that, um, a lot of people have a very kind of shallow level of spying in general. And I know that one of Stop LAPD's uh, spying's goals is to raise that awareness, like you said. And um, are these one of the things that uh, your coalition is help demystifying if there are things to demystify at all? And if there are, what are those other things? Absolutely. To uh, demystifying and, and really decolonizing a lot of knowledge has been one of our, our primary goals. Uh, and I think you ask a, a, the question, though, David, that, that has always been around where, and I think this is something that we also have to look inward as well, that how we have fallen into this trap where surveillance has been traditionally understood through this very narrow scope, as I said, of, of privacy. Um, first of all, looking at the notion of privacy or the experience of privacy or the practice of privacy, uh, we have to look at that, you know, how many people in the United States, particularly if you're black or brown or queer or trans or unhoused or migrant, can even claim that the the uh, the uh, uh, privacy itself. Uh, very very much, it becomes a very privileged space, and I would say even the very white privileged space as well, where one can claim that the you know just just having that privacy. So in a sense. When we start looking at it, when we start unpacking it, we start finding out uh, that, you know, that that surveillance and intelligence gathering has been center, central to how poverty gets maintained, to how, you know, uh, uh, racial control and racial capitalism gets gets maintained, to how, you know, just, just the movement of people uh, gets maintained, to how you know, just the control of various communities or the unwanted or the undesirable is policed and maintained as well. So let's take one example around homelessness. I mean, that is something that, you know, people don't make those connections with surveillance. So in, in, in essence, so before I go to homelessness, let me just take a step back that, you know, when I talked about looking inward as well, that traditionally the fight against surveillance has also been grounded in constitutional protections. And typically, that's what we hear that, you know, our First Amendment right is being violated, our Fourth Amendment right is being violated. And yes, I mean, all of that is happening as well. But when you when you start unpacking a lot of these things, you start realizing that who even has access to those constitutional protections? When, when we look at the most impacted folks in our communities, black and brown and poor and unhoused and queer and trans and migrants, you know, you can't, you don't have access to constitutional lawyers. You don't have access because the legal system by itself is designed in such a way that, you know, that it is there to continue to criminalize and recriminalize. And how are then the unwanted and the undesirable people warehoused? And that's where incarceration comes in. So in essence, uh, I think uh, it is also our, our responsibility uh, to acknowledge that, you know, there's a certain level of, uh, I, I, I don't want to use the word failure on our part as well, or, or you know, the, the movement building 
itself, but there's been a lack of full understanding and a lack of vision uh, to really unpack the impact of surveillance and take it beyond the immediate scope of constitutional protection. Here, you know, I mean, the purview has mostly been uh, like the ACLUs of the world, the American Civil Liberties Union, who have been on the forefront of responding to to, to invasion of privacy. But I think the failure where it comes in is that, number one, not taking it beyond the individual whose right has been violated, not looking at it through a collective lens of how, you know, just what the individual represents, not looking at, you know, the, the material harm that surveillance causes. And this is where I want to go back to what I was saying about homelessness, that, you know, we had a major fight, a long campaign, which really got amped up uh, in early 2016 against predictive policing. Uh, and what we did was that uh, while this fight started back about in 2013 or 2014, in 2016, we amped it up and, you know, in, in essence, started investigating and started researching the predictive policing programs. Hamid, I want to I jump in very quickly, too. Can you define what predictive policing is for our audience? Absolutely. And I was going to go to that. But basically, in essence, it means is, and the claim being uh, that, that, you know, that law enforcement agencies can look at uh, the previous data, the historic data of crime. They can bring in the current data of crime. They can use this, this pseudoscience or this milkshaker called algorithm and do these com computational processes. And then they can predict that where crime may happen. Uh, so that's basically what predictive policing is. But when you get into the details, there are different types of predictive policing. One is location-based policing, which is based on uh, on calls for service and people who, who may have called the police for for car break-ins or or you know just other other types of crimes. Um, and then what police does is they kind of start documenting this information and then they use this process to to kind of map out as to where crime may happen and they create these hot hot spots which is a 500 by 500 square foot area the other type of predictive policing is is a person-based policing where the claim is which was called operation laser los angeles strategic extraction and restoration program where the claim was that you know that police can identify individuals in the community who may have had a history of, of interactions with the criminal justice system, whether it was through gun possession, whether they were identified as a gang member, uh, whether they had some a serious crime on their rap sheet, or they were just stopped and frisked and had uh, interactions with the police, then they become peoples of interest. But the way they frame that is and they, that in a sense that they are chronic offenders. So then, you know, those individuals are put into a database and a chronic offender bulletin is issued, given to patrol cars who are then uh, uh, instructed to trace and track and monitor these the movements of this individual. And again, the overall claim being that, you know, this way we can preempt crime from happening. But when we started looking at the details, and of course this was happening as well, we started realizing that this notion of the feedback loop is sort of is a very narrow uh, understanding of predictive policing. Uh, so, so the fight continued, and 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 you know, needless to say, that the coalition has always been very action-based. 
And our goal is really to build power on the ground, especially being rooted in Skid Row, of folks who are being who are the most directly impacted. We were successfully able to dismantle LAPD's predictive policing programs. The first part, Operation Laser in 2019, and the second part, Pret Bowl in 2020. But one of the things that we did was that we 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 asked for public records through the Public Records Act and asked for a sampling of these hotspots. Said, let's even look at that. What does it even mean? And we asked for a sampling of two different six-month period between 2015 and 2018 in Skid Row. And what we found to even our surprise, I would say, that the Skid Row area was really didn't have a whole lot of hotspots, although it is the most policed area in the world compared to per capita and the population there. But the hotspots that were created created a, a, a digital boundary around Skid Row that it, it, it almost became a quarantining effect of Skid Row, which basically meant that this digital boundary was being created where the cops are going to be deployed as a shield from Skid Row residents to walk into the new downtown, to walk into where new, the lofts were being created, to walk where these penthouses were being created. So in essence, what it showed us was that, that on the face of it, that the claim being that the hotspots are about, you know, individuals committing crime, but the overall scheme was that it is really about protection of land. It is really about like, you know, gentrification. It is about development. So we launched a whole campaign and, we're, and working with our partners at Free Radicals, started mapping it out and started looking at more details. And we created this thing called the algorithmic ecology. And in that ecology or the landscape, we identified that how the academy or the academia is deeply complicit. The nonprofits are deeply complicit. Um, the Department of Defense was involved in this thing. The federal government was involved in this thing. The city council was involved in this thing. The mayor was involved in this thing. The police commission was involved in this thing as well. So in a sense, what the coalition has done, and this is sort of reflective of our work, that in our process of decolonizing this knowledge, that it's not what appears on the surface, but what really lurks beneath the surface and what is a broader landscape that each of these operations and these tactics and these technologies are operating in. And when you talk about these different moving pieces here, how do you approach that and where do you start? How do you prioritize tackling these issues? Well, I mean, I guess the the, uh, uh, the best way to speak about that is that, you know, you, the, your first point of entry is by learning about impact. And, you know, that that uh, and by impact, I mean the 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 various layers of policing that are that are happening as well. So so what we did was and this is so this goes back to I can speak a little bit about how the coalition was formed and what it did in order to really just build its work as well. Uh, so by impact, you know, I mean that we didn't parachute into the community as as you know, know-alls, as in like, you know, we have the answers, we have mapped it out. What, what we did was that we went out in the streets and we we spoke to various segments of the, of the, of the community. And we spent a good eight to nine by we, I said several of us uh, back in 2010, early 2011, and this is our 10th year of the coalition, we spent several hours and being based in Skid Row, several hours speaking to unhoused people. Like that, uh, that what does being suspicious mean to you? We spoke at length to day laborers. 
that, you know, what does suspicious mean, mean to you? And have you experienced, you know, surveillance in your life? Uh, we spoke to to youth coming out of cages um, uh, who were in gang databases and, and, and being targeted as a result of gang injunctions. We spoke to undocumented immigrants. We spoke to, uh, you know, the dreamers at the time as well. And we spoke to queer trans folks, members of Gender Justice LA. And, and the reason why we did that was in order for us to be educated and tutored that how are different segments of the community and people who are targeted, or at least, you know, are impacted directly as a result of policing, are even perceiving, and how are they uh, deciphering and, and, and you know, just to uh, use the, 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 the word demystifying, David, that how, how is the community experiencing that and demystifying it in their own lived experiences? And what does it even mean? It did several things. One, it kind of checked our language our vocabulary as to how we walk into uh, the conversation with the community when you're meeting people where they are. It, it, it expanded the depth of our knowledge and understanding that, you know, that what surveillance even means. Um, number three, it also helped us build partnership um, uh, with with the several of the directly impacted communities who would then become our partners, you know, over the last the next ten years and the key informants for us as well. So that became a process, the first process of demystifying um, this this piece as well. Then the next stage was that uh, let's do some research. Let's find out exactly how surveillance is taking place. So we started weaponizing using public records as a process and filing extensive public records to the Los Angeles Police Department. And, and what resulted in that was that, it, in, in essence, it helped us create a, a, a popular education tool, the architectural surveillance, that what were the different tools that the LAPD was using? Both when it comes to technology, material-based, like now people hear about Stingray, uh, which is, you know, cell phone-based or license plate readers or drones or high-definition cameras, but also the age-old human-based intelligence gathering as well, like suspicious activity reporting program and various other infiltration programs, intelligence gathering guidelines. So that helped us in kind of understanding that what was the infrastructure that this was being deployed in. The third thing that we did was, and which became our guiding values was, that kind of started thinking about this surveillance that, wait a minute, this is not, a, and our first guiding value was that this is not a moment in time, but a continuation of history. So started looking at through the, 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 his, the, the historic arc or the trajectory of surveillance as well, where we were able to go back and understand and look, and, and there are other scholars like Professor Simone Brown who've done some in-depth research as well, things like lantern laws. And many people don't even know about lantern. Lantern laws were laws back in New York City about 300 years ago, where if you were an enslaved person and you were out on the street walking without your master, you had to literally had to walk with a lantern in your hand to self-identify yourself as a threat to the system, as the other. Right. So and then we looked at the Red Squads, which were back in 1800s, late 1800s, which were there in the aftermath of the Haymarket strikes, which led to the creation of May Day, 
So in a sense, kind of doing this whole historic understanding, because many times surveillance gets limited to uh, COINTELPRO, the FBI's counterintelligence program, and how the FBI counterintelligence program impacted the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, the black, uh, the, the, the Chicano movement, the Puerto Rican liberation movement. So, so in a sense, it, that also became an organizing opportunity and an organizing tool as well, because we created these visuals to bring it out to the community and start decolonizing this knowledge and having these conversations that look, this is nothing new that we are talking about. This just didn't happen after 9-11. This didn't happen after you know the two wars that they talk about. This has been going on forever. And surveillance is critical. It's a central piece that how people that how social control happens. So in a sense, that that helped us in then making making an entree into uh, this system, but with a very clear understanding that that it has been going on forever. But how post 9-11, the tactics and the technology has evolved and how increasingly the occupation, the more recent um, wars that have, that have been waged, the occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan and other places as well, is very much informing local law enforcement of, of what sort of tactical operations are taking place. And what we saw was that how rapidly the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism tactics that were being deployed there were becoming a part and parcel of domestic surveillance. So in a sense, it's I mean, there's a lot there that I shared, but it was critical and we were obligated in order to really just kind of build that knowledge to decolonize that knowledge, to demystify what was happening, to really invest a whole lot of time and energy. And, you know, just a whole lot of community has been involved because primarily this has been a volunteer process. Wow. Wow, that was incredible. An incredible breakdown of how the organization came together. We definitely do have a couple of follow-up questions. Um, so in the, in the first, you had mentioned that the first part was that you and a team of folks had gone and talked to individuals um, throughout different parts of the community and ask them what suspicious means to them. Can you talk about some of the responses you've gotten of what they saw the term suspicious as versus how our government defines that term? I mean, one of the most, uh, I guess, pointed uh, responses that is always, you know, just and, and particularly, you know, just uh, uh, grounding our work in, in race and poverty um, that that, you know, I've heard from our comrades, particularly in the black community, is that just by just by virtue of being black, I'm a suspect body. So it begins from there. Right. Uh, just by virtue of being trans or queer, I am a suspect body, so I become a target of suspicion. Just by virtue of being a migrant, I am a suspect body. Just by virtue of being out there, um, and, and maybe just about the, the knowledge of being undocumented, I am a suspect body. Just by virtue of being a day laborer, I become a suspect body. And just as a virtue of being a femme identified person, I'm a suspect body. So I think when, when, so these are just very baseline sort of like, you know, visceral things that people, that, that happens to people and how we think about it, because this, these responses are also in, in, in response to that, how the white gaze looks at you, how white supremacy looks at you, how that white gaze redefines our very basic existence and, 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 and defines us as the other. 
that you know as the outsider as the other and we and that is also one of our guiding values as well the creation of the other and we speak about it in the historic context of the how various others have been created um, through media various others have been created to justify the violence to create laws to create legislation to create structures of control to create you know systems of social control so we talk about the savage native that how the native body was like you know savagely was attached to it in in popular imagination so incapable so they have to be controlled and quarantined um the 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 the, the body of the criminal black the body of the the illegal latino the body of the manipulative asian the body of the terrorist Muslim, the body of the, the deviant trans. I mean, I go back to, you know, just uh, the executive order 9066, which was resulted in, in, in the uh, folks of Japanese descent being sent to these concentration camps. And the claim at that time was that persons of Japanese ancestry contain enemy race blood, hence inherently disloyal and shall always remain unassimilable. Now that is a very loaded description of the other that you could have been here for five generations, but you inherently have enemy race blood and you can never be like us. So, so I think in essence, when we talk about suspicious, and now I'm just kind of building on that, but this is how we were learning and, and in a sense that uh, that how technically and then through surveillance and then how these, these policing programs get unleashed like weed and seed and broken windows and gang databases and suspicious activity reporting where the impact remains the same. And I think one of the things that really becomes the lowest common denominator is just looking at the numbers. That why is it like, you know, uh, black folks are stopped five to six times more uh, at a traffic stop under the suspicion and being searched as well. Why are so, so, you know, this is how what we learned, this is what came out. This is how, you know, the, the, the controlling and containment of communities through various actions came out. So that's, that's how we learned, went through this process. Thank you so much, Hamid. For those who are now tuning in, uh, this is The People with David and Fam on 90.7 FM KPFK, and we're listening to our special guest, Hamid Khan from Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Hamid, you had just shared about suspicious reporting, and it made me think of back early in the days in each neighborhood, there would be this picture of an eye. If you see something, report it, or at the airport, or in a subway station. And then this whole idea of creating the other and enforcing that narrative. Then you have the media doing that as well. And then you have the bodies that you talked about. And it made me think, my question before this was, why is the name Stop LAPD Spying Coalition? Why not Stop Spying Coalition? But now it seems like, would you say that the LAPD or the policing in general, we're not just talking about the police in general, but policing state, that 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 they do play a focal part in that? And, and how do we go about unraveling that and stopping that even more? I know that's a big question, but... Well, I mean, I think um, uh, that, uh, first of all, why uh, stop LAPD? Because it was really important to, number one, ground ourselves on a local level uh, and to really learn on the... Because all impact is local. I mean, you know, things can be happening on a national level, but where we are, where we are situated, it really becomes really critical uh, that we need to learn, first of all, in our own communities, that what is the impact of policing? What is the impact of spying? 
and then from there to to see that okay who are the who are the main perpetrators on a local level in our communities who are the ones who are the perpetrators of violence who are the ones who are then designing these programs and who are they targeting how are they then exporting those programs to other places as well so i think that's why it was really crucial for us that rather than having a huge jump and having a big pomp and show about a national piece and everything else was first of all to to look at their own backyard and see how these policing programs were being unleashed um and then who better than the los angeles police department which has been around for gosh about over 155 two years or so um who have been historically uh, they're the second or the third largest police department in the country um they have a long history of of, of unleashing violence in the communities long history of of racial violence of institutional racism uh, that they have unleashed on many communities as well but also the los angeles police department and I don't know how much folks know about their history they have also trained uh folks uh you know overseas as well so there was a time that LAPD had trained El Salvadorian paramilitary squads um there was a time that in the early 2000s or mid 2000s there were 70 marine corps individuals that were assigned to the LAPD to learn urban guerrilla warfare tactics that the LAPD was unleashing in south central los angeles uh so you know and then LAPD working very closely with the zionist state and the apartheid state of israel that how they worked very closely in in kind of coalescing and exporting these violences LAPD was training folks in rio LAPD has been been training folks in abu dhabi and and the and the, and the golf as well uh, uh so in a sense LAPD and being in Los Angeles it was extremely critical for us to really focus on the Los Angeles police department learn the intricacies uh, and the complexities of their system and their operations and from there start you know building our understanding and our research which was very grassroots and community based and local based and sharing that and then kind of having an analysis of the broader policing systems in the United States Hamid you've mentioned that a part of the work had to start by grounding yourselves in the local community but your work also extends nationally and abroad can you speak about some of the work that you Hamid the organizer does abroad along with how the stop LAPD spying coalition potentially ties into that as well I'll give you uh, a very current example that uh, uh, that uh, uh, besides you know looking at the Los Angeles Police Department as a tactical operation the way the coalition approaches surveillance is to really take a very deeply intersectional approach so for example how does the national security police state intersect with gender and sexuality how does the national security police state intersect and, and the by waging a war on youth how does it intersect so so in a sense that while you know surveillance is everywhere we are living in a carceral state uh, and surveillance and new technologies have almost made it even more insidious uh, where license plate readers and you know stingrays and phones being tracked and this that and the other is going on but yet at the same time uh, you know it's also critical for us to take a step back and see how nuanced that is so for example how sex workers are being impacted as a result of predictive policing and hot spot policing how trans bodies are being impacted so one of the examples i can share with you is about the war on youth that we have uh, our 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 fight against the war on youth we're looking at different programs 
um, that how youth are increasingly being targeted and the policing of the youth is increasingly becoming a national security issue where now they are the programs like preventing violent extremism, which is an FBI program, but it is very much rooted in behavioral surveillance and data mining. And it is it is now being floated K through 12. It is becoming increasingly becoming a part and parcel of, of various uh, school districts and school system as well. So in order for us to fight back, we had to go and find out what the roots of that, uh, where did it even emerge? And we, we, we found out that this program started in UK. So we reached out to folks in England, um, uh, folks at CAGE, which is an organization over there. And we have been in close contact and in conversations with them. But what is what that has done is that, you know, it is really serving the long-term goal of the coalition, which is really about building a culture of resistance. That, you know, it is not an issue, one issue-based fight. What we have to do is to really build that culture of resistance against surveillance, against spying, and against infiltration. So, in a sense, you know, both uh, sharing what how we are building that culture of resistance, but also learning that what has been the impact in England and what their fight has been against these issues as well. Uh, looking at the global uh, uh, impact of the architecture of surveillance and various other ways of information sharing, we spoke to folks in New Zealand. We spoke to folks in in other parts of the world. Um, we uh, spoke to folks in building with folks in South Africa as to uh, how the apartheid state uh, was using surveillance and learning from those folks as well. So similarly, our fights over here are now being looked at as a model of that building that cultural resistance and building grassroots power and dismantling where we were not looking at, at legislative fixes, where we were not looking at judicial fixes, but really about abolition and dismantlement by building that grassroots power. So, so we've been interviewed, and folks from around the from around the world have called upon us that how what is our understanding of predictive policing as these programs are being unleashed. So, I'm also happy to report that there's a big uh, uh, exhibition happening in Greece, um, in Athens, and where they are kind of centering our work uh, in this park. Um, where people are going to be at the exhibition and they're speaking about the work of the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition. We've had several uh, global media outlets, like uh, our fight was at the, the height of this fight at Predictive Policing. The Economist was here and they did a whole documentary. Al Jazeera aired a whole documentary on the coalition. Star TV out of Singapore came. So anyways, so, so, so the goal here is that, again, that when we talk about knowledge decolonization, how are we sharing this knowledge? knowledge uh, and become these thought partners and strategic partners, not just locally with our communities, but on a global level as well, um, informing the rest of the world and whoever is, is open to listen to us. And how can those people living here in LA um, learn more about those efforts and um, also what, what you're learning at Stop LAPD Spying Coalition? So uh, we, uh, community education and outreach and collective knowledge exchange and knowledge building has always been one of our key uh, sort of goals at the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition. So pre-COVID, um, uh, we were have we had a meeting every Tuesday in person in Skid Row at the offices of Los Angeles Community Action Network, which is 
our parent organization, which is, um, uh, you know, just a, probably one of the most preeminent uh, poor people's movement building organization as well. But when COVID hit, we had to pivot and we started a weekly webinar. Um, and this last Tuesday, we had our 60th webinar uh, since March 24th. So for 60 Tuesdays, since March 24th, we've had a webinar every Tuesday from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, people can go to the website, uh, www.stoplapdspying.org, which is one word, stop LAPD spying. Um, they can also message us uh, on social media at stop LAPD spying. But in a sense, that becomes a space where a lot of people have joined that fight as well where each Tuesday is again dedicated to that intersectional movement building. The first Tuesday is a conversation around uh, the intersection of the police state and gender and sexuality. The second Tuesday, it's the war on youth. The third Tuesday, we look at the political landscape. And now post COVID, we are deeply involved. We have a working group looking at the public system of public health, which is at the center of what we call the stalker state, that how information is being gathered and stored and shared, and we are being stalked as well. Uh, how genomic surveillance is, is and under the guise of preventing COVID or, 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 or you know, responding to COVID, that's increasingly becoming a data collection tool as well, where you have uh, corporations like Palantir in the mix, which is a CIA-based corporation, um, CIA initially invested to start that thing. So what Palantir is going to do with our data? Uh, and, the, and the fourth Tuesday is looking at the data-driven policing. So in a sense, it has created an opportunity for more people to get involved who are not just local to Los Angeles, but also from other parts of the world, people have chimed in as well. So it really creates an opportunity for that collective knowledge building. Uh, collective analysis and where people can take it back into their own communities and start building that power as well. I want to briefly expand on this webinar as well, because recently you hosted a webinar about data-driven policing from Skid Row to Palestine. And I think given, given one of the actions that you were a part of earlier this week as well, the Block the Boat action, um, can you speak a little bit about that webinar and also the action, how those two things tie into overall um, current issues in police surveillance? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the key exporters of violence on a global level is also the Zionist apartheid state of Israel, uh, and which has been absolutely central uh, to how, you know, various governments and, and various populations are being suppressed and contained and controlled because they have these populations of Palestinians, which is an open air prison. So what we found out was uh, more recently that as we started looking at, at, at certain documents, these and Washington Post actually did a whole story on that, that how smart policing um, has become the central theme of how communities are being contained and controlled. Now, smart policing is a vast area, um, but some of the central elements I can share with you are now, which is also uh, built upon the previous uh, uh, forms of intelligence-led policing, that behavior becomes central to people. So observing people's behavior, you know, watching people's behavior, which exactly, David, you were talking about, see something, say something, uh, which is a community informant-based program at the LAPD, which they call preemptive uh, measures to prevent acts of crime and terrorism. So smart policing, and as we started looking at it, we, we were very familiar with smart policing in Los Angeles, and predictive policing was a part of that smart policing program. We started putting these two and two together, and then people started researching 
researching, and it is, it's, it's a work in progress, that what are these connections between how, you know, just the b- b- policing in West Bank is happening, uh, policing in, 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 in Gaza is happening, and policing in, in, in control of the movement of Palestinians and the, the, the profiling of Palestinian community or anybody else who dares to speak up against the Israeli state uh, is happening as well. And looked at in, in Skid Row as to what were the elements of start policing like broken windows and predictive policing and hotspots that were being unleashed, that how communities were being checked and how, which I spoke earlier, this digital boundary of uh, algorithm-based boundary had been created, which it may not be as overt of violence as we see in Israel, but yet at the same time, this digital wall has been created and where cops are being deployed and LAPD is there lurking in the shadows that if somebody from Skid Row dares to cross those boundaries, they're slammed against the wall, they're harassed, they're intimidated, they may, put, may be put in handcuffs or a citation may be issued to them. So harassment, intimidation, because ultimately it really comes down to uh, like just the ethnic cleansing that is happening in Israel. It is about how how are the undesirable and and surplus population needs to be warehoused and which can't be warehoused in the prison system, how it needs to be removed and banished and that land taken over for gentrification and development. Wow. Yeah. And in regards to that, Hamid, clearly the type of work that you're doing is organizing activism work. How did you first get involved in this type of organizing and activism work even before Stop LAPD Spying? And why is organizing and activism important? Well, I was, you can say, as a as a young person, I was always that troublemaker in the neighborhood of getting all the kids together. So somebody like whose mom would tell other moms, like, keep your kids away from him. Because I, I grew up in Pakistan. I'm an immigrant myself. Uh, and I've been living in the U.S. since the late 1970s. So I think it is, uh, um, uh, uh, as a student, I was engaged, uh, uh, you know, just in that organizing as well. And, you know, just we, in, in Pakistan, growing up, we were going through military dictatorships, one after the other. So you know, in a sense that 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 the presence of police state was always there. So similarly, coming to the United States and migrating, of course, you know, one goes through one's own uh, sort of rite of passage as as an immigrant as well, you know, being undocumented and adjustment of status and on and on and on. But I think one of the things, the white gaze, and I've used that term before as well, immediately just sends a message to you of the other. That uh, that you know, it's we're keeping an eye on you, and if, if you are not one of us per se. So so, how does one defend oneself? How does one engage, and how does one start looking at people who are similarly situated, and 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 what is their defense? So my organizing history in the U.S. goes back in the late 90s to the late 1980s. I helped uh, form an organization called South Asian Network, which was primarily uh, a community-based organization, um, building power and organizing in uh, communities of South Asian origin, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Indians, uh, Nepalese, Sri Lankans. I was there for about 20 years and then transitioned. So so my history of organizing in the United States goes back over three decades. Um, and, and in that process, you know, it is it is you know, you, you start learning and you start understanding and you start unlearning a lot of that as well. That how race is central and, and how race defines what the, the United States is. So in a sense, as being a part of the larger other collective, I think I also felt that you, rather than being like, you know, looking at it and seeking 
um, you know, permission to go into the inside of of, of the white uh, of uh, the white system, if you will. That how do we build solidarity with the other, which is a much larger community as well, and particularly learning from the black community and the history of the black community, learning from the history of the indigenous community. That how over centuries this culture of resistance has been built and how people have, have really just advanced in their lives by challenging uh, the white supremacist system. And, and, and that power really lies in the community because you know we're not here to seek benevolence uh, or white supremacist benevolence and, and the goodness of the heart. One has to fight, one has to build that power. And, and ultimately the goal really is to abolish and dismantle this system, which is really sick to the core. That's why I and was I also... so, oh. Go, go, ahead, go, Christina. Ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, Christina. No, no, I just love it when he was just saying, that's why we have to dismantle and abolish. And I was like, oh, it was so good seeing you at the end police associations rally. But I, you were too far. I couldn't run up to you, Hamid. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I just want to say that. Christina, go ahead. Your question. Yeah. I was going to ask, so a lot of this work, this is this is a movement, not a moment. And a lot of this work takes time and it takes the patience and you have to put forth a lot of effort and organizers and activists throughout the community talk a lot about rest and taking time to also rest in between. Can you speak to that a little bit and and the importance of that, but also, also speak to how you find that time and stillness to rest? I enjoy cooking. So I just uh, absolutely just, uh, but but I think it's also, and maybe I'm an old school organizer that I also seek a lot of peace um, and and healing in building these relationships. Um, because I think uh, maybe it's just, I come from a, a particular premise that a lot of times, you know, you hear growing up and there's a lot of mystique about it, that I'm going to go to the mountain to find myself and, you know, just kind of, uh, sit under the tree and that's all awesome. That's all great. I, I, I love nature. I mean, I'm a part of the natural universe, but you know, for me, I've always sought um, the, 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 rather than the other creating the other, the similarities. And, you know, just as living, breathing parts of the natural universe, um, you know, besides the the, uh, the oceans and the trees and the forests, and it's other human beings that, that really inspire me a lot. And I seek a lot of inspiration uh, from, from, from that. I seek a lot of, I've always been a student of that as well. And, and, and you know, just seeking a, lot of, uh, seeking a lot of wisdom, seeking a lot of knowledge. I think uh, for me, uh, the last 11 years of being in Skid Row, have been a phenomenal experience where in, I've, I've been on a journey of a lot of unlearning as well. And I think when we talk about abolition, I also see that I see that more a process of unlearning and the privileges that we get to shed through our journey as well. So, so in a sense, you know, I seek a lot of healing and peace through that and building those relationships. And in those relationships that you build, I mean, you've definitely built some here locally with the various groups here, whether they be with Black Lives Matter LA and other groups. What are some other campaigns or things that people listening can look out for or just be on the awareness of? I think for the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition, some of the things that people should be looking out for and what we are trying to debunk some of this language is that, uh, that you know, I mean, power moves in its own ways as well. And we talk about intersectional movement building. Oppression is also deeply intersectional. 
and the resources that they have at their hand, right? The LAPD has a PR department, which is staffed by 40 individuals. So that's a whole lot of people who are just putting on a whole lot of BS and propaganda. So the language of community policing, for example, which is deeply, deeply insidious, which is very much driven by counterinsurgency and control of pass and pacification of people and control of people, right? So that is something that we are we are increasingly debunking and fighting. This whole new language of uh, of uh, uh, computer-driven policing and claiming that computers are race neutral, absolutely not. So when we talk about risk assessment tools, when we talk about artificial intelligence, when we talk about machine learning, when we talk about predictive and, and analytics and algorithms, this again creates this veneer uh, of the pseudoscience that is being thrown out there with under the guise that, you know, that, that no, it's the, the person is not there. So, you know, just implicit bias and all of that, the machines are telling it to do that. And it's much bigger than just bad data. It's a whole ecology that it's operating in. So, and then, and then of course, one of the key pieces that uh, uh, we are looking to release this report in the next couple of months that is going to identify that how these become front. This is the next stage of our uh, our dismantlement of predictive policing 1.0. This is the 2.0 that where data informed community focused policing. This this pseudo language is being driven, but it really comes back to this partnership between land developers, between the the legislative body, between the city attorney's office and the Los Angeles Police Department and police agencies, where ultimately it is about reconfiguration of spaces like South Central Los Angeles, of the east side of Los Angeles, that how conditions on the ground are being created, that people are forced to leave or people are forced to sell for, for more develop, for gentrification and development. So these are just some of the messages. And in that comes a whole lot around the unhoused community. Homelessness is a huge issue, how the youth are being impacted access to our healthcare and when we do go into healthcare how public health is now is increasingly central and the tip of that uh, stalker state as well so there's a lot there um and we invite people to join the fight we invite people to be a part of our be, be a part of this fight thank you so much for your time hamid and once again you can Find Stop LAPD Spying at Stop LAPD Spying on Instagram or stoplapdspying.org. Hamid, we wish we could spend more time with you, but unfortunately, we don't have any more time. Well, I'm really honored and, and, and happy to be here. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for the work that you all are doing. This is extremely, extremely critical work to, to, to be on the airwaves and get the message out. Absolutely. Once again, thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. The Black Market Flea kicks off their first community event tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at 608 South Mateo Street in the downtown LA Arts District. Black Market Flea will feature all black vendors and creatives. The event will also feature DJ sets by Baby.com, Caneo, and Silhouette. Pre-sale tickets cost $5. Otherwise, there are $7 at the store. For more information, check out Black Market Flea on Instagram. We'll also link you to their page on our own Instagram. Tomorrow, June 6, Public Bank LA will host a public bank community teach-in at 3 p.m. in partnership with Sunrise Movement LA, LA Forward Action, and ACT LA. 
During this time, the community has an opportunity to learn what a public bank is and how it will enable Los Angeles to save money and set priorities with fiscally, socially, and environmentally focused investments. The focus of Public Bank LA follows sustainability guidelines and empowers public policy goals, including permanently affordable housing development, clean energy infrastructure, and a Green New Deal for LA, small business development, services for unbanked and underbanked communities, and infrastructure projects. To find out how to join this community teaching, head to at Public Bank LA on Instagram. On Wednesday, June 16th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time, Abolition Feminists will host a panel and discuss how white supremacy and criminalization shape the experiences of gendered racial violence for Asian people. Join Dr. Connie Wan of AAPI Women Lead, Evis Chongwen of Red Canary Song, and Nai Norn and Heijin Shim of Survived and Punished California for their panel, Beyond Stop Asian Hate, Criminalization, Gender, and Asian Abolition Feminism. Stephanie Cho of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta will moderate. During this time, the group will discuss how stigma, abandonment, and violence from within Asian American communities can lead to false solutions and increased harm for the most vulnerable within those groups. They'll also explore what organizing looks like and the types of impact Asian American abolitionist feminists are making in the political spectrum and our everyday lives. This event asks for donations from $5 to $25. For more information, visit bit.ly slash A-A-F-E-M-I. You can also find a link to this event on our Instagram page. So David, we've come to that time again. Very quickly before we close out, what are you grateful for? Yes, I am grateful for freedom. And I know that sounds so general, but as we were talking about policing, policing states, surveillance, suspicious activity reporting, it was just like, oh my gosh, just let me alone. And it just made me think, oh wow, I need to really appreciate the freedoms that I do have and continue to fight for the freedoms that we don't have, that other communities don't have. Uh, but before that, it's acknowledging what I'm thankful for. And so, so yeah, so it made me have that thought. What are you thankful for, Christina? I'm grateful for the little day-to-day things that make my work day better. I recently started a new job about a month and a half ago, and I tend to go back and forth with imposter syndrome a lot. So I've been trying to find the little wins throughout my day-to-day, whether it's just getting a little bit better about learning the stuff about the stuff I'm working on, or just getting better in my craft as a producer and trying to find the little wins in that. And it's definitely made my work experience a lot better and also better in combating my imposter syndrome. (laughs) That's good. And you know all about that imposter syndrome. I'm glad you identified it and are aware of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Once again, We want to thank Hamid Khan of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition for joining us on our show today to talk about all things police surveillance and more. You can hang out with us every Saturday morning starting at 10 a.m. Pacific time on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at the people underscore LA. That's at the people underscore LA. You can also email us at the people los angeles at gmail.com 
We're active on our social media, so reach out and let us know what you thought about this week's episode and tell us what you want to hear about in upcoming shows. We want to learn what's important to you. The People with David and Fam is hosted by David Kim and me, Christina Diem Fam. We also produce the show together and headlines are written by us. Our sound editors are Jeff McAllister and Nasser Malik. Jeff also composes our music. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on your voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And ultimately, we're here to empower and arm y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. Talk to y'all next week.